Uh, really, Father, we, that's our prayer for each one of our lives, even though not all of us come here this morning feeling like we're, we're in the pit. Um, we all come here with our own level of struggle and frustration, our own level of anxiety. And Father, we come here knowing that we can't pull ourselves out of it, uh, but that we need you to pull us out and to set our feet on the rock. And, uh, and Father, we also come knowing that if our feet are on the rock and we're living our lives in peace and joy, that it's only because you've done that in our lives. And so, Father, we're thankful for that. And we just pray that as now we turn to your word, that you would continue to do that in each one of our lives, that you would speak to us clearly and powerfully through your word, and that you'd speak in such a way that our hearts are lifted and our feet are firmed up. And we're able to leave here with a hope and a firmness and a boldness and a joy uh, that only can come through you. And so, Father, we ask that you would do that now as we come to your word. And there are so many different things that could distract us, thinking about what's going on the rest of the day or trips coming up or all of those different things that could distract us. Father, we just pray that you'd push them aside for now and clear our minds so that we can hear you speak clearly and powerfully to us this morning. So, Father, we pray that you would open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. And all God's people said, Amen. So we're continuing to work our way through this series. We've got... Uh, Just a few weeks left, but now we're kind of on this third portion of our series on biblical sexuality, the redeemed section. And this morning we're looking at redeemed marriages, and we're going to talk about how marriages are missional. Um, And I do, I forgot, I was going to mention that at the beginning of this too, but um, I mentioned it last week, but we have a bunch of study booklets. I don't think I have an, oh, maybe I do, or it's an old, nope, that's my sermon from last week. (laughs) <laughs> they're back there in a, in a little wicker basket, and they say redeemed sexuality study booklets on them. And so um, they'll kind of go along with each of my messages and give you some questions to think about, some other uh, scripture passages to look at to kind of help us dive deeper in all of those. So I've got a bunch of them in the back, and like I always remind us, empty them out, I can print more. Uh, but this week we're looking at Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, 
But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. As I was studying the passage this week and uh, just thinking about marriage in general, I, I kind of came to the conclusion that our culture has really a, a fundamental misunderstanding of marriage. Um, but that misunderstanding in our culture, I think, has probably kind of infected all of us, and I'm talking about even myself. Um, and the misunderstanding is that marriage is all about us. Uh, we think marriage is just about me. And so we, we think, you know, I need to find someone to marry who's going to meet my needs. I need to find someone to marry who's going to meet my desires or who, who solves my struggle with loneliness or, or someone who's a perfect fit for me. And so it's all kind of this me, 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 me. And I think... Uh, it's one of the reasons, I'm not going to say that's the only reason, but it's one of the reasons we see so many broken marriages throughout our culture. Because if we think that marriage is all about me, we eventually come to a point in marriage where we realize it's not about me, and this person isn't going to meet all of your desires, and so then you do what? You leave, and you go to find someone else who's going to meet all of your needs and desires. Um, which is why we see broken marriage after broken marriage and divorce after divorce is because um, we have kind of bought into this idea that marriage is about, about me and meeting my needs. And, and what I want to talk about this morning is what if that's all wrong? Um, what if marriage isn't all about you? What if it was actually designed to, to be something else? And, and what we're going to talk about this morning, what if it was designed to actually point to something else um, that would necessarily change the way we, we live out our marriages in the world, that would change the way we interact with our husbands and wives and spouses, change the way we speak to each other, change the way we make decisions. And I think our passage this morning helps us understand that. And, and I know that this is one of those passages where uh, people get hung up on certain parts of this passage, right? And we kind of have a hard time getting past them, mainly the, like, submit part. And people go, ooh, don't like that. Um, and, but what happens is we go, ooh, don't like that. And then we, we miss the main point of actually what's being taught in this passage. And so I'm actually going to, um, as controversial as this whole series has been, I'm actually skipping the controversial part um, because I, I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees this morning. And I just want to focus this morning on some of the underlying principles in this passage and what they teach us about marriage because I think, I think they're beautiful and I think we miss it quite often. And, and I want to tell you just right away at the beginning, I think kind of the main takeaway I want us to, to leave from studying this passage is marriage is not about us. Marriage is about Christ and the church. Um, each one of our marriages, that's what it's about. And it's just clear through the... So, so move beyond the, the parts where you go, ooh, I don't like that in here, and just see that this is talking about marriage is about Christ and the church. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, 
and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit and everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right? The, the clear picture that, that's being portrayed in this passage is that this relationship between Jesus Christ and the church is what a husband and wife relationship should look like, right? So when you see a husband and a wife interacting with one another, you should see a clear picture of Jesus Christ interacting with his church. Like, that's the goal. And so, on the one hand, that tells, like, husbands and wives, you should interact with one another the same way that Christ interacts with his church. Um, but, but there's something even deeper than that being talked about here, and it's the fact that it's not just that Christ, the relationship between Christ and the church is an example for husbands and wives to live into. Actually, marriage was designed to point to that reality. Does that make sense? It's not just an illustration of husbands and wives. Um, and, and here's maybe a clear way to say this. I encourage all of you, um, if you're married or thinking about marriage, to read this book by Tim Keller called The Meaning of Marriage. But in it, he says this, when God invented marriage... He already had the saving work of Jesus in mind. And so it's not just like an illustration of how marriage is supposed to look. It's actually the foundation for marriage. When God designed marriage, he designed it so that it would be pointing people to Jesus Christ and the church over and over again. It's it's kind of fundamental to what marriage is, which is why... Um, Tim Keller goes on, he says, the gospel of Jesus and marriage explain one another. And so, on the one hand, that Jesus interacts with the church, and we could say, okay, this, is, this explains to me how I'm supposed to interact and, and love my spouse. Um, but deeper than that, the point is that the way you interact and love your spouse actually is designed to point people to the way that Jesus interacts with the church. That, that your marriage is designed to point people to the gospel. It's a pretty powerful reality. And, uh, and so when we understand that, again, it brings us back to this reality that your marriage actually isn't about you. Your marriage is about pointing to Christ and the gospel. And so the way you love your spouse should point people to Christ and the gospel. The way you make decisions as a couple should point people to Christ and the gospel. Um, the way you speak and interact, all of that point, should point people to the gospel. And, and to even kind of ratchet the seriousness of this up a notch... Um, our marriages not only should point people to the gospel, but your marriage or marriages are always pointing people to the gospel. Um, and the question is, is it the true gospel or is it a false gospel? Um, and I think that adds another level of, of seriousness to it. But I think what, when the world looks at Christians in their marriages... They're being taught something about Christ and the church. That's how it was designed. And so the question for each one of us, and it's something that is going to probably make us shudder a little bit, but is your marriage 
preaching the true gospel or, or a false gospel. Um, it's, it's pretty serious. And, and uh, we've, you know, we're, I don't know how many sermons, we're a long ways into this series. We've been talking about this for a long time. And, and we spent quite a while fo- focusing on how everything was broken. And so I'm not going to focus on that anymore. T- today I just want to, I don't want to focus on how we might be preaching false gospels in our marriages. I want to focus on how we can preach the true gospel through our marriages. And I want to do that by, by looking at this passage and showing the way it describes Christ's love for his church. And so the whole time we're being shown how Christ loves his church, we're being shown how husbands and wives are to love each other. And the first thing we're taught in this passage that I think everybody knows, but I think we need to, it needs to be emphasized over and over again, is that the primary way that Christ loves his church is by laying down his life for the church. Um, but, but notice the way this passage describes it. It describes it in a unique way. It says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And I think it's important to recognize the way it's worded because it's, it didn't say, as Christ loved the church and died for her, which is how most people interpret it. Um, but it says, he gave himself up for her. And one of the ways he did that, I think, is through death. But as I've tried to kind of reinforce lately is that actually Jesus lived his life for us, right? That our salvation isn't perfect unless Jesus lived the perfect life. And so every step he took, every decision he made in his life was an act of giving himself for the church. And so Jesus didn't just die for the church, but he lived for the church. And I would say he rose again for the church. He ascended into heaven for the church. Um, and that's a lot higher calling than just being willing to die for somebody. Um, I've, I've had to say that to husbands over the years. You know, you're talking to a husband and they're angry about their, their wife. And I said, go home and love your wife. Like, I would die for my wife. I don't care if you would die for her. Would you live for her? Because that's what Christ did. He lived for the church. He gave his life, not just in death, but he gave his life for her. And, and so that's at the core of what our marriages need to reflect. And then our passage goes on and describes why. Why would Christ give his life for the church? And, and on the one hand, you ask, well, why would he do that? People, well, it's obvious, right? Jesus loves me, this I know, Right? Um, that's why he did it. But, but I'm asking a different why. So there's a why that gets down to motivation, but there's also the why. What did Jesus want to accomplish? What was the end goal? Why did he give his life and death and resurrection? Why did he do that for the church? What did he want to accomplish for that? And, and we're told that in this passage. Um, and it says this, so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And then a little later it says, so that she might be holy and without blemish. Um, I always try to point out, like, words are really important. And so every time you see a that or a so that, that's giving you most of the time. It's talking about the purpose. Like, this is the purpose behind what was just said. So Jesus gave himself. What was the purpose? Why, why he gave himself? 
What did he want to accomplish? Well, he wanted to accomplish that the church would be sanctified and cleansed and washed and ultimately holy. That, that's why he did what he did. That's why he gave himself. That's why he lived. That's why he died. That's why he rose again. That's why he ascended to heaven. So that the church would be cleansed and forgiven and ultimately would be holy. And it's important to know that because this is it's why it's such a... I don't know the best word to use. I want to say blasphemous, but that's maybe a little. But for someone to say, like, I'm just going to live as a, this is maybe not the, but a forgiven Christian. I'm like, I'm someone, I'm forgiven for my sin, and I'm just going to continue to live on in my sin. But I'm going to be comfortable in it because I know that Jesus has forgiven me. And I say, it's so wrong to live that way because that's, Jesus died so that you would be holy. That was the, the goal. You would be holy. You, you would, he didn't die just so you'd be forgiven from your sin, but he died so you'd be cleansed of your sin and free from your sin and redeemed from your sin and so that you would be holy and clean and walking with him. That's the reason why he died. He didn't just die to forgive you. And, and I want to take a, just a, a real quick detour because I think it's important to just show you how this, one of the ways this passage talks about that happening Um, Notice what it says, that he might sanctify the church, having cleansed the church. How? How did he he cleanse the church? By the washing of water, kind of imaging to baptism, right? But then, but how did he, how are we washed of water with the word? The washing and the cleansing and the becoming holy, the primary tool that's being used in that is, is the word of God. Um, and, and we're shown that throughout, throughout Scripture in multiple places, and I usually take the opportunity to try to point us to that. But, but a big part of, of us living the life that God has called us to live is, having, is reading the Word of God and making that a daily part of our life. He cleanses us through that, not just the act of reading the Word. Like if you just get up and read your Bible for a couple minutes every day and move on and don't think anything of it, you're not going to be cleansed. Just the act isn't clean you. But, but as you read it and as it becomes part of who you are and you're convicted of sin and reminded of forgiveness and you begin to live that out in the world, that's the tool that God uses to kind of reform and reshape your life. It's the Word of God. And, and again, to add seriousness to that, that's why Jesus gave his life and death and resurrection for you is so that you would be cleansed with the word of God. And so it's important for us to take the word of God and make it part of our everyday life. And it's why when I'm preaching, you're hearing me preach the word of God. You're not going to hear me just talk about my life stories and stuff. You're going to hear the word of God because that's where change comes. And so, so Jesus gave his life so that the church would be forgiven and cleansed and, and holy. Uh, but we're also told that he, he continually nourishes and cherishes the church, right? It says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And so again, you ask, okay, why did Jesus give his life? Why did he live and die and rise again? Well, he did it. So that we'd be holy and cleansed, but he did it so that the church would be nourished 
and cherished. It's like an ongoing giving of himself so that the church would be strengthened. Like when you're nourished, you're, you're, you receive strength in your body and you're, you're built up and you're strength, you know. And, and so Christ is continually giving himself to the church, strengthening us and nourishing us. And then the, the passage asks another why question. Okay, so why? Why did he give himself so we'd be cleansed and holy, nourished and cherished? Well, why does, he, why does he want us cleansed, holy, nourished, cherished? Why does he want all of that? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. And I think it's a pretty powerful picture to say it, kind of to say this a different way. Jesus comes in and he, he nourishes his church, he, he cherishes his church, he cleanses his church, he makes his church holy so he can hold up his church and say... Isn't she beautiful? Look at how amazing my church is. I died for her so that she would be this beautiful. It's incredible. He, he wants to hold the church up so that everyone can see how beautiful and precious the church is in his sight. And, uh, I mean, think about that. Just bring it right down to home that why did Jesus give his life? So that he could take this congregation as part of his church. And he could hold us up and say, look how beautiful that church is. I died. I gave my life so that that church could be beautiful and holy without blemish. That's why he did what he did. And then you take all of that, which kind of, I hope it stirs our hearts, it should stir our hearts, and then that filters down, and then it says, now let that affect the way you live in your marriage. Like the beauty of the way that Christ loved his church should now be reflected in the way we live out our marriages. Um, and, and, and when our marriages start to reflect that beauty to the world, then what's happening is our marriages, in a unique way, start to preach the gospel, which is why I am saying that our marriages are actually missional in, in that sense of the word. Like, our marriages are constantly preaching the gospel to the world. And when our marriages reflect that same kind of love that Christ has for the church, people take notice of it. And they say, I, I want that. What do you have that I don't have. And so they keep pointing outside of ourselves. And again, it's this reminder that again that marriage, your marriage is not about you. And your marriage isn't necessarily just about fulfilling all of your needs and desires. It's actually about bringing the gospel to the world. And again, that needs to change the way we make decisions, the way we talk to one another, right? I think, I think most of us um, Probably if you were just honest with yourself and you got down deep into your motivations, most of your interactions you have with your spouse are kind of calculating, how can I interact in a way that my needs are met? <laughs> and rather than interacting that way, you should be calculating, how can I interact with my spouse in a way that helps the gospel go out into the world? How's, how do I interact with my spouse in a way that helps the world see Jesus' love for the church? Or rather than calculating, like, how can I speak to my spouse in a way that causes less friction? We, we should be saying, how can I speak with my spouse in a way that helps the world see Jesus Christ's love for the church? 
And so again, it changes the focus of our marriage. It's not about me, 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 me. It changes it on the one hand, our marriage ends up being this relationship that we're in that's bringing worship and thanks to God, but also this, you know, love for God, but also love for our neighbor. And it's this bringing the gospel out into the world. And it's a reminder that our marriages have an an outward focus. And what I want to do is I want to take a moment and just kind of explain some of that outward focus a little bit. Um, And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because I don't have it, but I want to expand on something I've said, you know, I don't know, a long time ago. Uh, we had a long pause in the middle of this, but, but something I said that I, I wasn't fully understood by everybody, um, and I waited till this point to explain it. Um, and so one of the things I explained way back, we talked about how God designed marriage. I said that God created marriage to solve the issue of loneliness, right? And so in Genesis 2, God says, like the first time we hear God say it's not good, it's not good that man be alone, right? So I'm going to create a helper fit for him. So God creates Eve, and then he creates marriage, and that's his solution to loneliness. And I said, God solved the problem of loneliness in the world through marriage. And uh, I always get pushback when I say that, because especially from those who are single, right? And they come up to me and they say, well, am I just left out to dry? Like, I still feel lonely. Like, is marriage solving my problem? And my answer is yes. And it may seem like an oxymoron. But marriage, actually, I think, marriage solves the problem of loneliness even in the life of a single person. And uh, here's my quick, my quick reasoning for that. Um, marriages were designed to be fruitful, right? Marriages were designed to produce people who produce people. Um, And when people produce people who produce people, you form communities. And then communities are formed so that they can then do what? Communities can surround people who are single and in need and provide them with fellowship. You don't have that without communities. And you don't actually have communities apart from true marriages. And so, again, it's a reminder that our marriages aren't just about us. And they're not even just about us producing children, but it's producing children who produce societies and societies then that meet the needs of the lonely and the single. And, and to just build that out, how do we care for the orphans and the widows and the poor? We do that by having marriages who have kids who build societies that care for needy people in our communities. And so, you know... I used to think growing up, you know, back in the day, they always talked about marriage being the foundation of society. And I thought, oh, that's just like, and then you think about it just practically. Yeah, because you need to have that to have people, to have societies, to have all of this. It's all built upon marriages. And so, again, it's a reminder. Our marriages aren't just about us and meeting our needs. Our marriages actually are about meeting the needs of other people out in the community, even the single and the lonely and the orphan and the widow. It's about so much more than just us. And we're going to talk more about that next week because next week we're talking about uh, singleness. But one of the things I want to I 
kind of bring us back to this, this outward focus of our, of our marriages is really at its core about the gospel. And we're told that right away at the, at the, at the end of this passage where uh, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, right? And he's quoting Genesis. This is where God created marriage. And so we're like, all right, yeah, husband's going to leave his father and mother. He's going to hold fast to his wife. They're going to become one, right? Not a team. They're going to become one. And he says, this is profound. Or some translations say, this is a mystery. But he says, I'm saying that that refers to Christ and the church. When God said that in Genesis, he was talking about Christ and the church. When God created marriage in Genesis, he was talking about Christ and the church. It's what it's been about from the beginning, and it's what it's about now in our marriages as well. And so, again, our marriages are not about us. They're about Christ and the church. They were designed to point to Christ and the church, which is why, which is why in the resurrection, we're told that there will be no marriage, which which really bothers some people. They're like, wait, you telling me? <laughs> like, I wanted to be with this person forever. And I say, well, you're, you're committed till death do you part, right? And the reason we make the commitment till death do you part is because Jesus clearly said that in the resurrection, he said, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Like, there won't be marriage in the resurrection. Why? Because our marriages were designed to point toward this union between Christ and his church. And in the resurrection, you will be fully united with Christ. And you will need no thing to point you to that union. You will just be fully experiencing the union and self-giving love of Christ for eternity. You won't need marriage to point you there anymore. And so it will be gone. You will actually, Scripture talks about in a different way, you will be remarried into Christ in a new way. You will, your marriage on earth will be fulfilled in Christ. And you will experience that for the rest of eternity which I think is really powerful. And, and again, we, we, because of God's grace, we get little tastes of that in this life. We get a little taste of what it mean, feels like to be united with Christ. We get little tastes of what it feels like of Christ's self-giving love for us in this life. And those tastes are good and beautiful, and that's all we know. And so we probably hold these tastes up higher because we haven't tasted more than that. But But the reminder is that beyond the little tastes that we get in this world is the fullness of that for eternity. That we won't be just getting little tastes of union with Christ or little tastes of his self-giving love, but we will experience it in full. You will be fully united with Christ, fully experiencing his self-giving love and care and nourishment for the rest of eternity. Which is why we, we move from the imagery of little tastes to the imagery of heaven being a wedding banquet, a wedding feast. That you won't be just tasting a little bit, but you will be eating and drinking your fill of union with Christ and his self-giving love for the rest of eternity. And that's what our marriages now are pointing us to. Um, and, and they hopefully are actually stirring a longing in us to experience the fullness of that 
in, in the resurrection and the fullness of our redemption through Christ. Let's come to, let's come to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful, so grateful for the way that you care for each one of us, for the way that you've cared for this church, um, and the way that you care for our marriages, and the way you use our marriages to care for others. Lord, we're, we're thankful that you've just designed things to work this way. And yet, Father, we recognize that all too often we make our marriages about us and our needs, our desires, and, and they are not about preaching the gospel or even caring for those around us. And so, Father, we come to you and we ask your forgiveness. We ask you to forgive us for our inward focus and for our selfishness and for distorting what you've designed marriage to be. But, Father, we want more than just your forgiveness. We want to actually live into the mar- marriage, our marriages the way you've designed them to be. And so we pray that your spirit would work and, and move in each one of our hearts so that we could love our spouse the way that you love your church. And so that our marriages would be a clear reflection and a true preaching of the gospel into the world. And that we would begin to live that out in the way we make decisions and speak to one another and love one another and the way we just live in the world. And Lord, may, may our marriages become a foundation um, for your kingdom coming into this world and your will being done. So Father, we pray that you would do that in and through us. Pray that you would use us as a community to, to help one another live into that reality. And we pray that you would receive all of the glory and the honor and the praise. And all God's people said, Amen.